Hi, I'm Patrick Radden Keefe, a reporter at The New Yorker magazine. On my new podcast, Wind of Change, I investigate a rumor I haven't been able to shake since I first heard it years ago. It came from someone inside the CIA, and the story was that the agency had written one of the best-selling rock songs of all time, a song that changed the world. So that was the tip that started me on this story, and it only got crazier from there. Listen to Wind of Change, a new original series from Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify. My name is Pascal De Silva. I am an animator and software product designer, and I run a studio in Brooklyn called Thinko Computer Entertainment Studio. Pascal has been enmeshed in the New York tech scene for a while. He's a creative technologist who's always releasing online art projects and experiments. And he got to know Russ and Colin back in 2013 by being an early adopter of Vine, the social media network that launched their careers as entrepreneurs. He first caught their attention with a funny video. It was me doing like a cartoon spit take, you know, like imagine a character drinking a glass of water and then someone says something shocking and they spit out a fine mist of water. I did this vine where it was me and two other friends and we were just continuously spitting on each other's faces in an infinite spit loop. And I think that was probably what got on their radar. After Vine shut down in 2016, Pascal would run into Russ every once in a while at mixers in the city and tech events like South by Southwest. That summer, he found himself in need of a job, so he reached out. I talked to Russ a little bit, and he had an agency, or still has an agency, called Big Human. And he had kind of talked to me about joining Big Human to work on... I don't know what exactly. We were just going to have a kind of loose meeting and talk about what kind of projects were happening there. So I take a meeting with him, and then uh, last minute, he's like, hey, actually, we're going to change the venue of where we're going to meet. I got this new project that I want you to see. Pascal heads over to this office building downtown. It's on a cobblestone street sitting above all these retail stores and designer boutiques. When he makes it up to the fourth floor, Russ and Colin are waiting for him. They just got this, like, Soho, expensive-ass office on, like, Spring and Wooster. Who knows how much that thing cost. And uh, I remember walking in, and it was just... It looked like a classic New York designer's startup office. Like, everything was just white and bare and minimalist and lacked soul. And there was no art up on the walls. And it was at that time they had revealed to me they were working on this brand-new app, which was, at the time, like, secret. Like, Big Human didn't even know about it. And they're all kind of wondering what the heck Russ and Colin were doing on the side. Turns out they'd raised a bunch of dough from Lightspeed. And Jeremy Liu over there gave them some dosh. They were like, yo, you guys did fine. I'll invest in whatever you want. And uh, they had spun up this company called Intermedia Labs. Intermedia Labs is the parent company to a few interactive social apps that Russ and Colin came up with until they landed on HQ Trivia. And it was funded by Lightspeed Venture Partners, a firm that invested around $8 million in 2016 and 2017 to help Russ and Colin launch their next project. Jeremy Liu is the well-known partner at the firm who spearheaded the round. Put a pin in that name. We'll be talking about him more later. Anyway, back to that meeting. So they pulled me in the conference room and we all got like super blazed. I kind of can't remember half of that meeting because I got more high than I expected, but... Is that typical for just New York tech scene meetings? Uh, I don't think so. Those <laughs> okay. guys, like, lo- they just loved smoking weed and, like, uh, <laughs> but it was fun. I was like, whatever, this is, these guys are chill. 
And yeah, we just like smoked some weed and they just like pitched me the high level concept of a hypermedia show. And they, and I was very inspired by, I forget the name of the documentary, but uh, by Douglas Adams that. Uh, Pascal is talking about a 1990 production called Hyperland. Adams is best known for writing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But he was also an enthusiastic early adopter, a lover of Apple computers, and an all-around futurist. The documentary stars an Ask Jeeves-type character who helps Adams navigate the early World Wide Web. Are you tired of linear, non-interactive television, Mr. Adams? Don't even know what linear, non-interactive television means, Mr. Adams? Are you tired, Mr. Adams, of the sort of television that just happens at you? That you just sit in front of like a couch potato that doesn't involve you? Come on, interact with me. However dated a virtual butler seems now, Hyperland was ahead of its time. It imagined a world where not only the web, but traditional media like TV would react in real time to the demands and queries of people watching. Pretty good stoner fodder. But that interactivity was also the central theme of a very, very early version of the project Russ and Colin were working on. Something called Hype. After watching some of the Adams documentary with Pascal, they demoed the app for him. It was freaking cool. It was like one of the coolest things I'd seen in a long time. It was kind of in this bunker mode. And so what the product looked like was a live streaming app where you could throw hypermedia widgets on the screen. Let me explain what he means by hypermedia. It's a nerdy distinction, but it's going to be important for what we're talking about. When the philosopher Ted Nelson coined the term hypermedia, he did so to differentiate it from multimedia. Multimedia is linear and not interactive, like a film. Hypermedia isn't linear, and you can interact with it, like the internet. These widgets Pascal is describing were a newer form of hypermedia because they were layered on top of live video and meant to engage with that live video. In essence, you could tap the bubbles on your phone screen and they would communicate in some way with whoever was streaming. The form factor we see it in today, the hypermedia today, the closest thing we have to that is Instagram stories. They call hypermedia widgets stickers, poll stickers and GIFs and songs and all of those things. But yeah, they were on that before Instagram was. To recap, they got blazed, watched that documentary and played around with this prototype. That was pretty much the pitch meeting. And then I remember I left and I missed my like subway stop and walked out of the wrong turnstile because I was way too high. And I went home and was like thinking about it. And I was like, man, this thing's, this thing's cool. He was really impressed by the technology. But more urgently, Pascal, who is actually Australian, even though he lost his accent a while back, needed a work visa to stay in the U.S. He eventually signed on to the project and became Hype's first real in-office employee. And as soon as he joined, he got a front row seat to Russ and Colin's work dynamic. They had been working, I guess, on Hype for, it might have been a year, six months to a year, I'll say, like before I'd even come along. And I was like, why the hell haven't you guys shipped even a tiny version of this thing? And it was all speculative. They had the classic founder fear that everything they make has to be as big as their last hit. There's a lot of mythologizing around Silicon Valley giants and the partnerships that start them. When I was growing up, my mom worked at HP. It was the year 2000, and the company wasn't exactly thriving under the direction of CEO Carly Fiorina. 
And I remember my mom being baffled by its decision to spend $1.7 million on the modest Palo Alto home, and more specifically, the extremely modest Palo Alto garage, where Bill Hewlett and David Packer built their first device. It was already a designated California historic landmark, but they completely refurbished it and turned it into a museum. If you visit it today, a plaque on the outside of the home calls it the birthplace of Silicon Valley. There's no question that Bill and David's accomplishments were historic, but the legacies of early Silicon Valley giants have motivated today's CEOs, who are known for their large egos, to internalize the importance of their work and do their best to tout it early and often. The brief history of Silicon Valley also tells us that the effort to secure a legacy can sometimes play out in ugly ways, especially when a company is founded as a partnership. A working relationship between two people with complementary skills can suffer when it's time to divide up the spoils that come from running a multi-million dollar company. Microsoft co-founders Bill Gates and Paul Allen, for instance, began as young equals, spending all their free time tinkering on their high school single teletype computer. But Allen later revealed in his memoir that as the company grew, Gates became a competitive bully. He was so wrapped up in controlling Microsoft that he tried to force Allen out and cut his shares while he was recovering from lymphoma. Apple's co-founders, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, have a similar story. They were introduced when Woz was in college and Jobs was a senior at Homestead High School, my alma mater, and began collaborating on a handful of projects. Early on in their partnership, Woz discovered that Jobs was secretly taking a cut of their earnings from work that relied on Woz's engineering. Though all these technologists have said that they nevertheless valued their working relationships, they were clearly not without strife. Things get crowded. And once a company gets big enough, so do its founders' egos. I'm Alyssa Bereznak, and this is Boom Bust HQ Trivia. So how did this founder dynamic play out in Russ and Colin's relationship? To understand what was at stake, you need to know what brought them to a fancy Soho office with millions of dollars in VC funding. Way before Hype and way before HQ, their working relationship began over a decade ago at a luxury travel startup called Jetsetter. Russ, Colin, and an engineer named Dominic Hoffman all helped build it from the ground up. Russ's firm was contracted to do creative direction, Dom was doing user experience, or UX, and Colin was covering the technical end. Drew Patterson, the CEO of the company, remembers being especially impressed with Colin from his very first interview. He had a, an energy and an inquisitiveness and a curiosity and, and you know, an ambition that was, was like, absolutely, this is the person. Uh, you know, he was pushing me on the like, okay, well, what's the vision for how we're going to take over the world? You know, where is this thing going? I'm not interviewing for a job. I'm interviewing you for a, to explain your vision to me and get me excited. Colin was so adept at what he was doing that he eventually replaced his supervisor and began running the engineering team himself. They all spent a lot of late nights working in this loft space in the Flatiron District. Colin and Dom were working out of a basically a, a commandeer conference room on the seventh floor. And so, yeah, we would be, you know, we'd end up getting like takeout and work till, you know, midnight, you know, one, two in the morning. And Colin would be smoking cigarettes out the window. You know, it was not without friction, right? I mean, we certainly had, you know, in the kind of like spirit of, of how do you get to the right answer? You know, we had our arguments or 
creative process. But yeah, I mean, I think we worked incredibly well together. That was a matter of opinion, depending on whom you were asking at the company. Colin always threw himself into whatever project he was working on, but was often abrasive and dismissive of other people's ideas. And he seemed to be aware of this, at least according to a Wall Street Journal story from last year. Colin reportedly told his mentor at the time that, everyone thinks I'm an asshole, and I am an asshole, but I can't help it because everyone around me is so stupid. That tension came to a head in 2012, when both Drew and Colin were booted from the company following an exodus of executives and a staff mutiny. Dom, the UX engineer, was part of the exodus. He had other ideas anyway. He had been toying with a concept for a video editing tool, a product he was calling Vine. As a social network that likes to keep things short and sweet, it's not surprising that Twitter released a new app that lets you upload six-second videos. The app's called Vine. It's available for iOS devices and is already being called the Instagram for video. From the very beginning, Vine was a pretty simple idea. Dom imagined a modern way to edit online clips recorded from your phone, stripped of all the unnecessary buttons and dials borrowed from analog technology. All you had to do was touch to shoot and lift to pause. The software blended your footage together seamlessly, and in the end, you'd get a looping six-second clip that fell somewhere between a GIF and a YouTube video. After leaving Jet Setter, Dom had enlisted Russ to help him design the product, but it wasn't long until he realized he needed Colin's technical expertise to make Vine shine from the inside. They were able to sort out their working relationship under the common goal of making this cool new thing happen. And then, while they were still in beta, they had a meeting with Twitter to discuss a potential collaboration. At the time, Twitter was looking for a way to get a leg up on Facebook, which had just purchased Instagram. Dom didn't comment, but Alan Kroll, Colin's dad, recalls hearing about the meeting from his son. I don't think he was at Vine more than a month or two when they had an opportunity to show Vine to Jack Dorsey, who founded Twitter. And he was so impressed with this, they made an immediate offer. The guys didn't really want to sell it at that point. Uh, they came back with a ridiculous double what they asked, and Twitter took it without even negotiating. Twitter bought Vine for a reported $30 million. It released the product in January of 2013 to rave reviews. People liked the six-second constraints of the video and were creating cool things with it, and techies were especially impressed with how efficiently it ran. That spring, Dom and Colin went to a local meetup called NYC Apps to show off what they built to other developers for the first time. Hi, um, I'm Dom Hoffman. I'm the uh, GM and co-founder of Vine. This is uh, Colin Kroll, the uh, CTO and co-founder of Vine. And um, this is our first time uh, up here together doing this as Vine, and we've had drinks, so uh, (laughs) who knows what could happen. Colin took the opportunity to explain its elegant technical underpinnings. But I'm just going to cover a little bit of like, how did we take the idea of simplicity and work it into the interface? Um, Because this is, in a lot of ways, the magic of Vine. And both Dom and Colin marveled at their newfound parent company. As for being with Twitter, it's fucking cool, man. It's great. It's great. Uh, It's it's a great place to work. It's one of the best decisions we've made. Meanwhile... Vine also gave Russ the opportunity to do his own special type of corporate peacocking. Here's a video he did for the Webby Awards while he was still at the company. When we started building Vine, I would experiment with creating little videos with objects on my desk. I remember uh, creating a stop-motion video of myself eating a piece of chocolate. So that's where it all began. 
Vine is a new thing, and new things should look new. Won't see a blinking red light or time codes or timeline scrubbers. Not only were we inventing a new way to create and share videos, we were also inventing a new design language. Twitter's acquisition of Vine made Dom, Colin, and Russ all very rich in both literal capital and professional capital, especially because when the app was released in January 2013, it had immediately hit a cultural nerve. Vine's user base was producing these amazing memes at a dizzying rate. Abraz on fleek. The fact that these clips were videos, not images or text, made them easily remixable. I remember there was this one vine where this kid spells out the word iridocyclitis at a spelling bee. People just went wild with it. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! Iridocyclitis. Same like the whole city go against me. Every time I'm in the street, I hear iridocyclitis. Oh my God, Becky. Iridocyclitis. Don't you? As all of this was happening, songs from unknown artists on the platform were blowing up. And teens from all parts of the country were starring in their own videos and becoming famous in the process. New faces like Logan Paul and Lele Pons, now famous YouTubers, were landing real brand deals for their content. Vine was laying the foundation for a newfound influencer economy. The only problem was that Vine itself didn't have any kind of strategy to capitalize on that. And Twitter, which was struggling to figure out its identity in the market, wasn't really in the place to help. Casey Newton, the Verge editor we spoke to in our last episode, was covering the company when things started going wrong. They could have put front roll ads in front of Vines. They didn't do that. They could have introduced some kind of paid partnership program with the Viners where they would split revenue for like paid placements. They never did that. They did acquire a talent agency. And I think the thought was that they would start to work with brands and take some brand money to work with big influencers to do some kind of promotional things. But that basically never really got off the blocks. Meanwhile, Instagram launched its own video feature, and YouTube was luring away Vine's talent with an ads program that actually guaranteed creators some kind of stable income. There was this kind of famous moment where after the game had been over for months, if not more than a year, some of the Viners went to Vine and said, you've got to help us monetize this platform. You've got to give us these features that we've been asking for, or we're going to leave. I should note, too, that the founders were slowly peeling off, which is a thing that happens pretty frequently when a large company acquires a startup and the founders cease feeling empowered. Kurt Wagner, a tech reporter who wrote about Russ and Collins' time at Vine, says they really resisted that ownership. They really just kind of rejected Twitter at every turn. Uh, They didn't want to be part of the culture. They didn't want to be part of the infrastructure, technically. And I think that they really kind of rejected their host, if you want to call it that. Eventually, Dom left to pursue another startup, which left Colin to be promoted to general manager for a bit. And given the fact that management was never Colin's strong suit, that didn't go too well. One of the things you learn about Silicon Valley is that bad managers actually, it's not a death kiss, right? You can be a bad manager and still succeed here, for better or worse. And there's a lot of examples of people who probably shouldn't be the boss, but because they came up with a good idea that's working, they get to be the boss. I think the real issue with Colin in particular was that he had also 
collected a reputation of kind of being inappropriate around some of his female colleagues when he was at Twitter. Specifically, a star female engineer who reported directly to Colin quit the company. That's when Twitter launched an investigation into his behavior. There were no, as far as I know, still to this day, any official HR complaints from him at Twitter during his time there. But there was a lot of discussion, and I I talked to a number of people who worked with him who had kind of gathered this reputation about him that he made his female colleagues uncomfortable. And it was things like, you know, saying something, making a joke maybe in the office that would make someone uncomfortable, coming up, talking about weekend plans, like, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, here's what I did, and telling stories that made people uncomfortable. So it wasn't really aggressive sexual harassment. It was more of a subtle behavioral thing that led his colleagues to think he was a sort of creepy sometimes. Twitter fired Colin in the spring of 2014. According to the Wall Street Journal, he got to keep his bonuses. Russ left the following year. Twitter tried to find someone to buy the app, but no one wanted it. I think because Twitter had so many other problems with Vine, it was always like, we'll worry about the monetization later. And then by the time it came time to really worry about it, they decided they just had to shut it down. The day the shutdown was announced, Russ tweeted, don't sell your company. There was a sense that all of the founders really lost something they loved. And not only that, but whatever long-term legacy they were trying to build was cut short. They were obviously quite rich from it, but maybe they felt a little robbed nonetheless. Which brings us back to hype in the summer of 2016. This was Russ and Colin's second chance at something big. And this time, they would do it right. As they started building the company, they recruited former Viners to host dedicated channels on the app. Things like news channels or weird prank call shows. All of it was fun and exciting from the outside. But on the inside, Pascal was beginning to realize that Colin and Russ really clashed. I'd say they had very different working styles. I think Russ was a lot more zoomed out and theoretical, maybe to the point that it was impractical, and Colin was incredibly pragmatic. I liked working with Colin a lot because things were in the tangible, and I'm the type of like designer or creative person that likes to work in tangibles and have output. Really, the source of the most tension was the question of who would be CEO. We kind of had this agreement that they would not only sponsor my existing immigration status, but would also, you know, help me through the path of becoming, I don't know, a citizen or a permanent resident or that kind of thing. But part of it was like, I had to get like the CEO or whoever, the highest ranking officer at the company to write letters of endorsement and blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, guys, who's the CEO? And then they would get into these fights about like who would be the CEO. And then there'd be like these side conversations where they'd be like ousting each other. They would both tell me reasons why they thought the other person shouldn't be the CEO. And maybe that that other person should be like fired, like straight up conversations like that. Colin had a lot of opinions about Russ. When I talked to Colin, he'd be like, man, we need to work out how to like tether like rust down a little bit because he's you know going off on all these like high level things which some of them are good but then some of them are just totally totally useless shit and Russ well he had a lot of opinions about Colin when I'd hang out with Russ you know we would talk about a lot of high level vision stuff and that stuff's important and you know so we connected as like designers but there was definitely a disconnect because I don't think he's that practical a designer this dude would just like print out 
screenshots of like app designs he did and put them up on like cork boards and just like stroke his chin in front of them. And then it never really led anywhere. But his like view of Colin, like I think maybe he was like trying to seed it to me that he didn't think Colin was like a great leader at the company. And, you know, Colin had had his own like share of troubles with leadership at previous companies. But, you know, there's like truths and then like spun truths kind of coming from both sides. And I would just have to learn to filter them because those guys ultimately needed to be able to work together to make the company work. Despite all this noise, Pascal found a good rhythm with Colin, submitting regular builds to the App Store and getting feedback from beta users. Some of Pascal's ideas were even making their way into the app. And then one day, Russ asked him to go grab a beer down the street. He tells me, he's like, yeah, so I've been talking to Colin and uh, we decided there's just not like room for another founder type at the company. And I was like, okay, well, that's cool, I guess. Uh, I mean, you could just tell him you fired. That's fine. But more importantly, like, I need to like work out my immigration shit because if you like terminate my contract immediately or whatever, I have to leave the country in like freaking 10 days or whatever the hell. And he's like, yeah, we can talk to your lawyer and we'll make sure you have a smooth transition out into your next thing. Maybe it was a miscommunication, but Pascal did not get that extra time. Over that weekend, he terminated my visa. And I only found out after I talked to my lawyer and I was like, what the fuck? Asked for comment, a spokesperson for Russ told me that it would have been illegal to continue sponsoring Pascal's visa after terminating his employment. Pascal had a different understanding. I hit him up and I was like, dude, we talked about this and you have to like go out of your way to terminate someone's visa. Like it's a dick move. Like on a weekend, lawyers don't even really work on the weekend. As Russ made quite clear to Pascal that day, there was no room for a third founder type at Hype. There was barely room for two. Next on Boom Bust. They all were hoping that they could become rich. I think that was a half of the motivation was we could be rich, we could invent the next big thing. It was this hot company, it was the end of the summer or fall, and you just knew they were going to get this massive funding round, like Silicon Valley VCs can't help themselves. It was the hot thing. He said, HQ will be forever, right? Don't you think HQ will be forever? And I kind of looked at him smiling, like, obviously nothing's forever. Boom Bust HQ Trivia was written and reported by me, Alyssa Bereznak, and produced by Noah Malalay, Isaac Lee, and Amanda Dobbins. It was story edited by Amanda Dobbins and sound designed by Isaac Lee. 